I was raised on comic books, right? I mean, you know, I grew up in a household that had Wonder Woman comic books from World War II, so they had everything. You know, I've been going to Comic-Con probably since I was like eight. I've always been interested in sort of the visual part of popular culture. I'm more interested in what most people like than what academics like because you know to me that's sort of the driving force and how people are getting educated about this history through things like popular culture and propaganda like the yellow peril it made me realize that this is something that i actually should have studied a long time ago i should have been paying closer attention to how we shape racism in popular culture or how you know different ideologies of different times allow people to represent things in different ways Welcome to the fourth installment of the Chapters podcast series. I'm your host, John Baird-Ingalls. In our Chapters series, we focus on stories surrounding the exclusion, forced removal, and internment of Japanese Americans. But with all that is happening in our country right now, in this historic moment ripe with the potential for change and growth, we are expanding our scope and amplifying the voices of organizations and individuals who are trying to make a difference, who are standing at the convergence of art, education, and social justice. With this series, we honor those who have struggled and suffered in the past and question, how are we still here? How have we not come any further than this? In this episode, we connect with Dr. Stephanie Takaragawa, Associate Dean of Academic Affairs at Wilkinson College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences at Chapman University. She is creating an online interactive educational experience, highlighting comics, graphic novels, and other modalities from and about the incarceration camps for Japanese Americans following Executive Order 9066. Well, let's start by talking about the project Images and Imaginings of Internment, Comics and Illustrations of Camp. I'd love to know how the idea came about uh, to focus on this medium of comics and in this historical context and in the retelling of this history. As a, as a cultural anthropologist, my area is actual, actually visual anthropology. Like it's something that when I was an undergraduate at USC, they had visual anthropology. And I thought that's a really interesting concept, this idea of studying culture through visual objects. And I wanted to study art and anthropology. And it, as an undergrad at USC, they told me, oh, no, 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 visual anthropology is just about ethnographic film. And I said, well, that's dumb. But what I did was as an undergrad, I took anthropology and art and art history together because I wanted to understand what that context looked like. And um, I went on to grad school and got a master's degree in art history because I thought I was really much more interested in looking at why different periods or why different geographic spaces or why different you know identities create art differently. Why can you tell what Renaissance art looks like? Why, why is there expressionism and impressionism? And what does that say about society and culture? It was, you know, one of those, that's why you go to college. Uh, you know, one of the photography professors had, you know, talked about photography as the medium that allowed expressionistic art to happen before people could capture the image. There was this emphasis on realism. And then after that, that's when you get impressionism, pointillism, expressionism, surrealism, Dadaism, because the camera freed up that ability to use painting in other ways. And so I, I was curious how that worked sort of cross-culturally. And while I was in my graduate program in art history, I, I saw a class in the, this was at Temple University in Philadelphia. I noticed that there was a class in anthropology called the Anthropology of Museums. And I thought this would be an ideal way to sort of put together representation and culture and art. 
And I met with the um, professor who said, you know, of course, we'll allow you to take our class. But, you know, we don't really like art historians. We don't really think that art should be studied in a vacuum. We think it should be studied in a cultural context. And I said, you know, that's why I want to take this class. And so, you know, he said, you know, just so you know, you know, the other students might pick on you. And I was like, oh, I'm okay with that. Like, I'm, I'm probably used to that. So I ended up taking this class. And in the third week of classes, we, we were talking about body modification and Jim Rose's circus sideshow and like oh, how yeah. this fits into like, you know, particular aspects of visual culture. And he stops the class and he was like, young lady. And I'm like, yes. It's like, what is your undergraduate degree? And I said, it's an anthropology. And he said, well, you failed to tell us that. He's like, you're in the wrong program. You need to come into our program and you need to study visual anthropology. And I said, I've always been interested in visual anthropology, but I was told that it was film. He's like, oh no, not at this university. I'm interested in particular in art and comics. And then I, I went home and realized that he had written all these books that I had read as an undergrad and had no idea that this field existed. And so all of my research looks at why people create visual images as communicative forms, right? We talk about aesthetics. When I think about aesthetics, you know, people always talk about this in terms of things that are beautiful, but we were taught to think about it in terms of successful communication. Beauty is just a successful communication because people find this, they, they they don't have another word for it. So we were really thinking about, you know, how do people convey emotional topics through any kind of visual representational form? Like, you know, we had these exercises, like, can you make a film that explains a theory without using words? So he gave us all these really bizarre exercises to make us think about how we think visually. And I think I've just always carried that with me. And when I was doing my undergraduate work, I ended up writing about the Japanese American National Museum and how it told the story of the Japanese American incarceration, mostly because it was a story I knew nothing about. And, you know, in high school, I had learned, or in college, not high school, no, not high school, not in nope, the 1980s, no, no. no Japanese American uh, yeah, maybe a sentence or a paragraph. Yeah, I and I think I learned, I don't even think I learned about it in a class. I think I learned about it through other people in Japanese American, like, cultural groups. And then I went home and asked my family about, you know, the Japanese American incarceration and said, uh, what is that? And they said, don't talk about it. and Don't ever say those words in front of your grandparents. And so, you know, I was largely self-taught. And back then, you know, the Japanese American National Museum didn't exist. And so my aunt had told me that they were thinking of making a museum like this, and they were looking for people to be in focus groups. And so I joined the focus group and, you know, realized that the story that they were trying to tell was also through images. And it made me think about art museums and exhibition spaces as ways of reaching a general public that doesn't always get reached. Not everyone's going to read a book. Not everyone's going to be taught this in class. Like, how do you get the actual world to sort of understand this? And so I started working, doing sort of focus group things with the Japanese American National Museum. And one of the first things that I learned, they'd asked me to like participate and work with them. And they were doing an offsite exhibition, or they were working in tandem with UCLA to create an exhibition of this artist, Mine Okubo, who illustrated her entire camp experience. And that's sort of how I was introduced to what it looked like at the times, because there were very few photographs or home videos or all of those things, because cameras and you know video cameras, whatever, still cameras were contraband. So people illustrated their experience but those 
images never really got out, right? You very rarely see that. Mina Okubo, luckily, she had a show in UCLA in the early 90s. She had a show with the Skirball maybe 15 years ago and had a show at the Japanese American National Museum last year. And she, she published a book that sort of looks at her entire stretch of finding out about the Executive Order 9066, like Pearl Harbor, Executive Order 9066, being interned, and then what her life was like afterwards. Um, the book is called Citizen 13660. And it made me start to look for other images of incarceration. And so in 2020, when I taught a class on, or the Warren Society program asked me to teach a gra graduate class on the Japanese American internment, I thought, I would like to do it entirely through visual images. I'd like to do it through photographs, films, and drawings, and the artwork that people created in the camps, rather than a standard history to sort of push the visual narrative of how the images that we see or didn't see were the things that allowed us to imagine camp in ways that were easier for us to imagine. There was a propaganda element at play where where photographers were were paid to capture the images to kind of put America's mind at ease that this was you know that every, this was a community in the camp yes. right the Ansel Adams and the uh, um Dorothea Lang Dorothea Lang photos that make it seem like look the kids are in school and they have gardens yeah. uh and, and that's really all we have yeah uh, image wise uh and it definitely skews America in general, our view of, of what happened. Yeah, especially, I mean, Ansel Adams is, you know, in his, you know, altruistic heart, he wanted to show the Japanese Americans as Americans. And he was very clear about his intentions were right. And the book that he published, why can I not remember the name? Um, but, you know, it really, it has, you know, a picture of a smiling Japanese American woman in a nurse's uniform and like, you know, people in their military outfits, people playing games, a beauty queen, like it is all the things. Um, Born Free and Equal is the name of the title of the book. And Born Free and Equal is intended to sort of show that all of these people in these incarceration camps are just like everybody else. They're loyal Americans. Everybody's smiling. Everything is beautiful. They're like, you know, John Ford films where they're like being shot from down low. So like they're this towering person like Superman. And, you know, they're, they're very positive images also because he wanted to show that, you know, in spite of all this, they're persevering. Dorothea Lange's images actually weren't like this. So she took photos. She was, she actually, in her diaries, you see, um, she she was very critical of the incarceration. She felt that this was completely unjustified. And her photos were censored until much later. Um, her photos were very rarely ever used. And when you see them now um, in places like the Japanese American National Museum, they're always shot in dark, confined corners or people who aren't smiling. Like they're exactly the opposite of Ansel Adams. And then there was another person named Toyo Miyataki who had smuggled a, a lens into the camp and then built a camera box around it. And, you know, he's sort of famous. He shows up and, you know, I think he he might be a character in Farewell to Manzanar, but he shows up in a lot of these these sort of discussions about um, Manzanar, that there was a guy who was taking pictures and the camp director let him. More recently, we're finding that there were other people like Patty Hirahara's grandfather and, and father, Frank and George Hirahara, were taking pictures also at Heart Mountain. They had built a, a darkroom under their... Um, their barracks. There's another series of images called Colors of Confinement, where there are color um, images that were 
taken of people living in camps. And then, you know, five years ago when my grandmother passed away, one of the things we found was an entire photo album of images of their family at Heart Mountain that are snapshot photos, which I'm not clear where they came from. And, you know, she had passed away, so we could never ask her, but she never shared these with us. She has an entire photo album of Heart Mountain. And so it is, it makes me think about, you know, who took these pictures in the camps and then she had them. And, you know, one of those little sticky page by page, stick the, you know, photographs into the, and the little clear plastic thing goes over. So they're in terrible condition because for the last 80 years, we did not know this existed. And so it was never really, nothing is sort of archival. But, you know, when I taught this class, I was interested in, in using Ansel Adams, Dorothea Lang, Toyo Miyatake, some of the other photographers, Mina Okubo's images. But then... George Takei's, um, they call this enemy graphic novel had just come out. And I thought that it was so interesting that all of a sudden there's a graphic novel on the internment. You know, George had written about it in his biographies and he probably was the person who spoke about it, you know, most, the highest profile person that spoke about it regularly. And so, you know, the class was just, you know, images of internment and we wanted to use this as a vehicle to understand incarceration because i also thought that if you can see the sort of humanistic depictions of like things that i had learned about when i was doing the focus groups for the japanese american national museum that you don't think about the fact that the latrines where you know where they had to go to the bathroom were a series of toilets next to each other in an open shared space there weren't any partitions and so the women would go in the middle of the night to try to use the restroom so nobody would see them because they were embarrassed that there are no walls and no doors on any of the stalls or there are no stalls or there are stories of like women who would go with a blanket and then cover themselves with a blanket or put a, a giant box or things around them and like that's just horrific and so you know i thought how do you really teach this experience how do you share with other people what this must have been like i don't know what it's like but i've learned enough about it through these representations that i thought using visual representations are visceral but they're also in a lot of ways less threatening than text so i thought you know with graduate students first of all they need how to look at primary source documents anyway they need to look at visual documents as data you know, and so that was part of that impetus. And then in class, there was a student in my class, Winston Andres, who said, what about the comic books that were being created during World War II outside? He's like, I read in George Takei's biography, George had found a comic book or a Superman strip during World War II that depicted Superman going into the camps, dressed up, first of all, like Superman in yellow face dressed up like a Japanese person to go root out the spies in the internment camps, which he does, which is super problematic because if what people learn about incarceration camps comes from fictitious Superman who finds something that no one else found and are not reading newspapers or, you know, government reports, because who would? At the end of the day, they're going to be like, there must have been spies in there. Like, they must be incarcerated for a reason. Like, we, the yellow peril is fully justified. Like, all the sort of, you know... It all goes back to who tells the yeah, story, it, right? Yes. I mean, who, who's telling this history or who's telling this as it's happening? And, and you know, if, if there's only one side that you're getting, that's all you have to believe. Yeah. So I think that sent us on this question about what did the other comics look like? And so we started looking at those. 
Um, and this was a project he wanted to do in class for his final paper, but there wasn't actually enough data and there wasn't enough. It's really hard to just figure out, like you can't just put like Japanese American and comic books into a search engine. You, you find a few things, but not that many. And the things that are out there we found, but we thought, you know, what else is being made? And then in that time period, we also found out that because the Japanese Americans are reading the newspapers in camp, they saw the Superman comic strip and they wrote back to it. And so we were then wondering, you know, well, what, how are they representing themselves in this? And so those were the two questions. And because it was not something that was possible for Winston to do that semester, and because, you know, in the next two years following that class, Kiku Hughes released the book Displacement, uh, Frank Abe re released the graphic novel We Hereby Refuse. Um, prior to that, there was a bombshells, you know, Wonder Woman comic that shows Wonder Woman trying to stop the Japanese American who are being herded off to an internment camp because, you know, in the revised Wonder Woman, she thinks that this is a violation of civil liberties, which is, you know, very different from World War II Wonder Woman, which, you know, I, I had some of those when I was a kid, like, you know, we had lots of old comic books and I thought, you know, one day I was looking through them and I'm like, what are these buck tooth yellow slanted eyed monsters? Like these, this is really how they're characterizing Japanese people in these comic books, which, you know, was also sort of really sort of, you know, eye opening for me as a kid to be like, this is how they think about people of Japanese descent in America but, you know, especially during World War II. And so the project sort of spiraled out of that, you know, that class. And specifically from the um, from the Superman comic book that George Takei had identified and said he couldn't get the rights to reproduce in his in one of his publications at the time. I was raised on comic books, right? I mean, you know, I grew up in a household that had Wonder Woman comic books from World War II, so they had everything. You know, I've been going to Comic-Con probably since I was like eight. I've always been interested in sort of the visual part of popular culture. I'm more interested in what most people like than, you know, what academics like, because, you know, to me, that's sort of the driving force and how people are getting educated about this history through things like popular culture, through things and propaganda like the Yellow Peril. It made me realize that this is something that I actually should have studied a long time ago. I should have been paying closer attention to how we shape racism in popular culture or how, you know, different ideologies of different times allow people to represent things in different ways. And so for me, you know, I had applied for a, a seed grant at Chapman to just do a sort of small scale project on this, which turned into a larger project as we started to find more things, but also realized we needed more resources. Like what we want to do ultimately is to, you know, create a fully like comprehensive archive of all of these images that existed, both the comic books about the incarceration, you have these things like you know, Captain Midnight and Green Hornet who have internment camps, like one specifically says Tule Lake on their cover. And, you know, this is how you know that this is a good guy because he's like stopping all of the people who are at Tule Lake, you know, running out of these camps where there's like no evidence of these kinds of things happening. And then I wanted to also look at what was being created in the camps because they had their own newspapers, both as responses to what was happening outside, but just also their everyday, day-to-day -day representations through short comics. Like, how do you convey what's happening in a way that is 
entertaining, critical, and accessible to all the people in the camp, but also that, you know, any kind of censorship that's occurring at the level of the U.S. government as they're printing newspapers, you know, it's also going to get through that. So, you know, what are the stories inside the camps that they're telling to each other to sort of help create solidarity and find ways to just persevere through what has to be a pretty hideous, you know, situation? But also, you know, what's happening on the outside that's making it a hideous situation for them? I would love for you to talk a little bit uh, about, I mean, there was so much that I learned in just going through your website um, and kind of going on the journey that it takes you on. But I'd love for you to talk about one of those camp illustrators, uh, Chris Ishii. I, I think it's such a fascinating story. That, uh, and, and I'll let you share it, but it was just so wonderful to read and, and his whole purpose behind what he created. It wasn't about... Um, it wasn't about revolt. It was about, like you said before, yeah. trying to create a sense of normalcy for the people inside the, the incarceration camp. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that is so interesting. We always think about these things as, you know, these people must be like battling all of these things every day, but really they're just trying to survive in the best ways that they know how. And issues, you know, and what's interesting is that so many of these people were incredibly talented artists, they were incredibly talented writers, they were, you know, they already established themselves in these communities. And so um, the bulk of the people that were incarcerated were citizens, right? They were not Japanese nationals, they were US citizens, because they were born here. They were young, and they were idealistic. And, you know, they spent a lot of time trying to, you know, Make sure that they went to different kinds of schools and got educated. And, you know, Ishii was an animator already before he was sent to the internment camps. He'd already sort of been somebody who wanted to be an artist, right? He worked for Disney. and Right. Not just an animator. Like, <laughs> yes. He was a Disney animator, which was, you know, the, the premiere yeah. still is. Yeah. And you find that there are actually a lot of, of Japanese-American artists artists who ended up working for Disney or ended up working for the film industry. But one of the things he wanted to do was, you know, to was was to create this character, Little Nebo, um, which stands for Little Nisei Boy, right? And it's sort of this like silly little kid with funny hair that's, you know, running around this incarceration camp, you know, but he's intended to sort of like demonstrate kind of experiences. I don't know that it's happy-go-lucky, but it's just sort of like, this is what it's like. And what is interesting about people who were kids in the camps is that a lot of them, what a lot of them remember is they didn't have school, they ran around with their friends all day, and they didn't really have the same kind of critical lens on what was happening, right? George Takei talks about this. He he ta he sort of reminisces about all the things now later that he realized were, you know, so challenging for his parents, but at the time, you know, was just like kids running around. My aunt mm. said that I had asked her, you know, and she was probably also trying to make this sound better when, you know, I said, you know, you were like nine in the incarceration camp. What was that like? She's like, I just remembered that I thought it was fun because we have freedom. You, you go on a train ride. Yeah. You're around other kids. You're around other kids. There's, there's no yeah. school. You know, you get to eat with your friends. You get to play with your friends because your parents are all busy either working or stressing out about stuff. And 
you know, it's like a giant, huge playground. I mean, you know, except for the snow and the 120 degree weather and the barbed wire and the people with rifles pointed down at you. I mean, but, you know, as a kid, if you're just sort of running around in this giant playground with your friends, there is sort of a different kind of understanding of what's that like. You know, looking at people like Krasishi and what he was trying to do and like, you know, the sort of stories about, you know, the different artists that were all, you know, trying to create like a shared sense of community and solidarity through these experiences because, again, there wasn't a lot of critical writing being shared. You know, they weren't writing stories in the newspapers about the conditions, but they could do these sort of humorous little kinds of short things that I think did help, you know, create some sense of community um and and you know there's this idea you know the sort of perseverance this shikataganai you know attitude that they they always say that the japanese have that um the it can't be helped or nothing can be done about it so they just persevere part of that really is like how do you live with this situation that is so different from any other kind of situation you've ever experienced I thought it might be interesting to look at, um, you know, these kinds of objects as some some sort of small bits of resistance, right? Like being able to assert agency through these kinds of animations that are sharing the day-to-day life in a way that is acceptable to a U.S. government censoring crew. So it 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 kind of is the duel of like we're still here, we're still going to persevere, as you said. Um, and I mean, it is community based because other artists drew this character. Right, he made this as a shared character for other people to use as a vehicle, you know. And it really became sort of you know in my head like this sort of representational mascot that everybody could hold on to and share. I, I think that there is an element to this this comic or graphic novel that that goes beyond still images that we have. Those still images we have very limited context to what it is that we're seeing, but these uh, illustrations and and especially when we get into the the graphic novels, tell you stories that really put you in a place that that uh, a still image or a photograph uh couldn't do uh as i was reading through frank ave's book uh we hereby refuse i was learning so much more <laughs> about that experience in the camp mm-hmm. and about that that resistance and rebellion than i i had learned in all of the research that i had done yeah yeah no it's surprising that his book covers so much ground that you know, most people don't know. I'm sure there are things that when I read that, I remember thinking, I've read about all of these things in piecemeal places, but never seen them all together all at once, which was never the story about the camps that you hear about. The, you know, the story that you hear about most really is about, you know, Toyomi Otake smuggling in a camera and people letting him take pictures. But Thule Lake is sort of monstrous. The no-no boy situation is, you know, horrifying. Um, you know, just how also like being in that situation made people really sort of suspect of everything that was happening to them. And, you know, and then that was always turned against them. And, you know, they also very much vilify the JACL and Mike Masoka, which, you know, I never understood why my family 
you know, because I said, you know, why aren't we part of the JACL? Why don't we go to those things? Because, you know, we grew up in a Japanese American community. We went to Little Tokyo every Sunday. And my grandfather would just like the nicest, you know, happiest little old man. But like, if you said JACL in front of him, like he just went off. And I never understood that. And because I didn't know about internment camps until I was in college. And, you know, then I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, you know, things that I learn as somebody who should have had access to this history. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and just for context, a lot of the people from the JACL, the leaders wanted everything to just happen or go away, right? It was more of that, that uh, just sit and let it happen when you had this younger generation, it's like, no, this isn't right. Yeah. And that's where the clash was. Uh, it, it's this, you know, we, we're citizens, we're American yeah. citizens, and we shouldn't have to do this. Yeah. Well, no, if you just do this, everything's gonna be yes. fine. I mean, that's what America teaches you, right? Like you are individualistic, you stand up for your rights, and then, no. Yeah, one of the reasons that I wanted to look at this specifically is because I want people to understand how we become racist or why we fear other cultures right like there are ways in which our society just naturally creates enemies that it needs for whatever reasons that justifies its exceptionalism or its defenses or its whatever it happens to need at that moment and that people don't you know they're not born racist they're not born as sort of dichotomist eastern and westerners but you know Lots of theories about, you know, why Asians are the model minority or why they're perpetual foreigners are really based in Western imaginations of creating an other that reifies this normalcy of what a Western sort of sensibility is, right? So you need to have a foreigner in order to have a community that is protected from that thing. Like if there's no enemy, there's no reason to have community. In looking at how you created a yellow parallel, how you created the situation that created Executive Order 9066 so that you had all of, you know, the United States fear like 0.2% of the population of people of Japanese descent, you know, required actually mobilization of resources of ideology of propaganda. But if we can see how that happened in the past, we might be more critical and aware of what is happening in the present. And I think it was moments when you know you would hear politicians bring out the japanese american internment history as justification for incarcerating muslims or incarcerating you know any other you know Immig immigrants at the border immigrants at the border right arab americans after 9 11 like there are all of these ways that people still look at that history as justifiable and usable today and so i feel like for me it was important to to contextualize the way that we weaponize difference as an educator, but also because like me, who did not know about the Japanese American history in World War II, when I teach this at Chapman, I often, this semester, or well, last semester, because now we're in a different semester, had students in my class who had never heard of the internment, whose families were interned. And, you know, these are Japanese American kids who at this point, I assume everyone has heard of the incarceration during World War II. But then again, only three of them knew who George Takei was across the entire class of 22, which was heartbreaking to me because I was so excited that George Takei was going to come and speak to them about his book. But it's 
just surprising what people know and don't know. And I tell them all the time, it's not their fault. There's a lot of history to know. But this is an important part of history that I feel like could very easily have disappeared if it wasn't for, you know, conscious attempts for George Takei, for Frank Abe, but also for a community of people to be ready to help support these stories being told. The website project um, and the exhibition project is there to educate any teacher who wants it on how to teach this content in this way. I think the comic books, I think the visual narratives are really much more accessible, right? These are kids who were raised on comic books and anime. Anime is like frighteningly gigantic now, but, you know, really, they they know how to read graphic novels. And it's funny, a lot of my peers are like, I, I don't know how to read a graphic novel. I'm like, what? <laughs> it, it's interesting that they're just so otherly oriented. They're like, well, it's not really a book. That was something else I was going to ask. Is it, a, it, it feels like it's a generational, like an, an not an attempt, obviously it, there's, there's a purpose behind making these as a graphic novel, but you are reaching out to a younger generation specifically. There is, there has to be some kind of a, a guided uh, yeah. a messaging system yeah. to hit these younger readers and then hopefully expand this narrative and this history. Yeah, and I want uh, them to see it, you know, when they're in the sixth grade, even not in its full content, but then when in the eighth, when they see it in the eighth grade, it's not completely foreign. And then by the time they get to high school and college, they can actually think about it critically, right? You need, I think that's, you know, also the mistake that you can like, it's a one-shot history, you learn about it once. And I think the way that we've conceptualized the website and the physical exhibition to go along with it is to just sort of, you know, always continue to change um, and add to it and make it sort of dynamic and vibrant. And, you know, we have, you know, we're putting in the podcasts, we're putting in, you know, short video lessons, we're creating curriculum for everybody to be able to, to have tips on how to teach this. Because, you know, one of the things that we get most often from faculty who are trying to teach this is, you know, how do you teach this content without upsetting students? Or how do you do this in a way that's sensitive? Or how do you do this? You know, we have to have these difficult conversations because that's how people learn to be critical and that's how they learn to grow. And, you know, with things like removing ethnic studies or removing critical race theory from the classroom, um, which is a terrifying thought to me, will create a bunch of uncritical, unthoughtful students with a decontextualized sense of self in whatever way we can do to help create any parts of history and make them invisible, accessible, and make people want to learn more about it even if you know it's because it's a comic book and it's artistic and interesting um and it makes them think of pokemon you know is at least an entryway we want to thank stephanie takarugawa for more information visit chapman.edu slash wilkinson chapters podcast was produced by past forward and made possible with support from chapman university and california civil liberties public education program a state-funded grant project of the california state library for more information visit pastforward.org chapman.edu and library.ca.gov